welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to this week's episode of ELI's People, Places, Planet podcast. As climate change impacts become more visible and the urgency for climate action continues, it is important to remember that we need to address emissions from all sectors, not just fossil fuels. While fossil fuels do account for a significant portion of U.S. emissions, there are actions we need to be taking in other industries to significantly reduce emissions. So, today, we're discussing the agricultural sector. I'm Heather Ludke, a research associate here at ELI, and today I'm joined by Peter Lehner, managing attorney of the Sustainable Food and Farming Program at Earth Justice, and Nate Rosenberg, a visiting scholar at the Food Law and Policy Clinic at Harvard Law School. We're going to dive into the policies, legal reforms, and actions the United States should undertake to make the ag industry carbon neutral. In late 2021, Peter and Nate released a book entitled Farming for Our Future, The Science, Law, and Policy of Climate Neutral Agriculture. The book provides a comprehensive overview of the law and policy of agricultural emissions in the United States, serves as a blueprint for policy change, and aims to change readers' perspectives of agriculture. Today, we're going to discuss their findings and learn about crucial next steps for the industry. Peter and Nate, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having us. So let's get started. You've spent so much time researching and thinking about this topic, and I'm eager to learn more from you. But first, could you each tell me a bit more about your career and how you came to write this book together? Peter, if you want to get us started. Sure, thanks, and it is a real pleasure to be with you. Uh, ELI has been a great partner with us in writing this book. Uh, I've been an environmental lawyer pretty much my entire career, and uh, one of the constants I've seen in in all my different uh, jobs has been the impact of agriculture. For example, I started at the New York City Law Department, and people may know that New York City gets its drinking water from upstate reservoirs, And as we turned to making sure that drinking water was clean and protected, we could see the challenge of keeping agricultural pollution in particular out of the source water of that drinking water. It was, we had the tools under the Clean Water Act to address uh, industrial pollution and, and pollution from human sources, such as sewage treatment plants and septic systems, But those tools are much tougher when it it came to dealing with agricultural sources, such as cows standing in streams and doing their business. Uh, I later worked for the New York Attorney General's office, uh, running the Environmental Bureau for the state of, for, for the whole state. And again, saw a number of cases where fertilizer, pesticide, manure runoff uh, was harming drinking water and how challenging it was to address that. So I came to realize that we really needed to focus uh, on that. And uh, now that is what we are trying to do. I've also been lucky though, I've I've spent a lot of my time managing farms and I've seen that changes to traditional practices really can dramatically reduce pollution and can also increase habitat and uh, even achieve climate neutrality. So I've seen some of the challenges of agriculture, but also some of the real potential in agricultural transformation. 
Nate? I, uh, so, so I've been working on agricultural law and, and policy since I graduated law school about uh, a decade ago. And um, I've been working, so, so I come at it more from an agricultural law and policy perspective, but I've been, there's uh, in, environmental issues and environmental law have, have always been something that um, I think if you're interested and, and focused on agric agricultural policy, um, it has, it plays uh, or should play an incredibly important role. Um, and I started to work more on, on climate issues when I was a legal fellow at NRDC, where I met Peter. Um, and I was excited to um, spend more time working on, on climate change and agricultural policy because it's just such an important issue, the most important issue facing uh, non our society and uh, more narrowly ag agriculture. Um, and it's also an issue I, I, I work in other areas like like labor policy um, and look at equity issues in agriculture. And it's already affecting these other aspects of, of agriculture. Um, and so I think in order to understand the, the, the policy issues in agriculture, regardless of um, uh, where you're coming at it from, it's, it's just incredibly important to uh, look at climate change and, and have a, a solid grasp on how the sector is going to change and how agricultural policy will need to involve in, in response to that. And Heather, you asked how we came to write this book. Uh, again, ELI has uh, had a big role there. Uh, professors Mike Gerard and John Dernbach were, were drafting or editing a big book on legal pathways to deep decarbonization of the United States. Uh, and they asked us to write the agriculture chapter. And what we found was that there was a real lack of information in the earlier works about how to address agriculture to take really taking agriculture uh, as seriously as it needs to be taken. And so the agriculture chapter ended up being a pretty big chapter in the overall Legal Pathways book, which then uh, ELI asked us to expand into the book. So we're grateful to, to Mike and John to get us started and, and ELI for keeping this project going happy that we've been able to kind of help spur this along. It definitely sounds like this book was a long time in the making. So to dive in, one of your key findings is that agricultural emissions are much higher than commonly reported or understood. Can you elaborate on this? Um, what is the significance of this underreported number? Sure. One, if you look at the EPA greenhouse gas inventory, the number that's most commonly cited, it says that agriculture is responsible for about 10% of US greenhouse gas emissions. And, and the, in some ways, the impact of that is for a lot of policymakers to say, ah, 10%, it's not very much. Uh, we don't have to really focus on reducing agriculture's contribution to climate change. But in fact, when you look a little more closely, you see that agriculture's contribution to climate change is a lot greater uh, and therefore, both the need to address it in our climate change policies and more positively, the opportunities uh, to 
help curb climate change through agricultural policy reform is even greater. So where is, is the current inventory uh, perhaps not showing the full extent? It's in a couple ways. Uh, one is that there are a number of aspects of agriculture that are really affected by agricultural policy uh, and deal with what happens on the farms, but aren't included in the inventory in that sector. They're, they're in the inventory, but they're in other chapters, so you don't realize. So that's like on-farm energy use and electricity. That's, uh, for example, the manufacture of fertilizers and pesticides, which are both very, very energy intensive and emit a lot of greenhouse gases, and of course are then used on the farms, uh, aren't included in the agriculture sector. Another challenge is that most of agriculture's contribution to climate change is not from carbon dioxide, which is the gas that most of us think about when we think about climate change, because that's the result of burning fossil fuels, power plants, coal-fired power plants, uh, and running your cars, burning petroleum. Most of the contribution of climate to climate change from agriculture is methane, a, a very potent greenhouse gas, and nitrous oxide. Uh, and what's tricky is methane largely comes from essentially the belching and uh, and manure of cows and other animal livestock. And nitrous oxide comes from excess fertilizer that's put on the fields, hundreds of millions of acres of fields, that then if it doesn't get taken up by the plants can convert into this potent greenhouse gas. So policy often asks the question, how do we convert those gases into a, a number that makes sense for carbon dioxide? And the way we do that on the 100-year time scale uh, often really undercounts the importance of methane. And now that you, we are looking at how we can get to uh, policies, uh, carbon neutrality or, or significant reductions in emissions by 2040 or 2050, we need to look at a shorter time frame. And when we do that, we see that methane is much, much more powerful uh, than we had really considered it over the very, very long term. And then one last very important area is agriculture uses a lot of land. Most other sectors of the economy really don't use much land. And land, healthy land, whether it be grasslands or forest lands, before it's converted to agriculture, has a lot of carbon in it. And when it's converted to agriculture, that carbon is exposed to the air and is essentially released uh, as carbon dioxide. Uh, and moreover, when it then stays in agriculture, instead of the every year absorbing more carbon from the atmosphere as healthy forests or grasslands might, uh, it is uh, not sequestering any carbon. So there's a tremendous land impact uh, on climate change from agriculture that again is partly considered in another chapter of the EPA inventory and partly not uh, really addressed at all. So when you add all of that up, uh, agriculture's contribution is much, much greater. It's really closer to the same contribution, say, as the transportation sector. Um, and therefore, if people understood that, there would be greater understanding that we really have to address agriculture's contribution to climate change. And again, there's a great opportunity to help us address climate change if we do tackle uh, and reform agricultural policy. 
we, we found as we were doing our research that not only are our agricultural emissions much higher than commonly believed, but that they're much more uh, concentrated than um, the USDA's data would, would indicate. Um, there are a lot, we have a chapter on uh, farms and uh, farmers and other operate and other stakeholders in the sector. And we spend a great deal of time looking at the data on um, farms uh, in, in large part because it's uh, incredibly misleading. And we took a, a really close look at USDA's data uh, as well as other sources such as um, uh, other government um, employment and uh, uh, operation surveys and uh, tax data. And we argue that, that there are about as half as many farms um, as USDA reports. So there are about a million rather than, than two million. Um, and even among those uh, one million farms that, that we argue are, are actually in operation, only a, a, a minority of those farms produce the vast majority of, uh, of emissions. And I think this is really critical to understanding, um, you know, how we can approach the sector and, and approach reducing those emissions. Yeah, I think if I would just say one other thing, Heather, is one of the, the key findings we found is overall, there's a surprising lack of information about the impacts of agriculture. And again, I come at this from being an environmental lawyer for many years, where we know a lot about the impacts, say, of the petroleum sector or the chemistry, chemical manufacturing sector, and certainly the power sector. Uh, but there's a lot less information here. There are a few, there aren't that many people covering it, uh, the agriculture sector very critically. Uh, there are pro special provisions in the law that hide uh, or that make it very difficult to share uh, agricultural data. The EPA information and the US Department of Agriculture information don't really mesh very easily. So it's hard to, to make the two work together to understand what's going on. So there's a great opportunity to improve policymaking overall by just increasing understanding of what's going on and, um, and, and the impacts of that. Thank you both for breaking that down so clearly. Um, another major point from your book is that the United States can completely eliminate net agricultural emissions. What actions need to happen to make this a reality? So as with almost everything in agriculture, it, it depends on the climate, the soil conditions, and, and so on. Having said that, we need to waste a lot less fertilizer, raise fewer animals, and produce a lot more biomass in the form of trees, shrubs, and perennial grasses. The first two steps would dramatically lower ag emissions, while the last step would dramatically increase the amount of carbon dioxide farms are sequestering. I think the the it's what's important to know in terms of what we need to do here is agriculture is a big complicated sector of the economy. Uh, obviously, it's very different, uh, say dairy in New York and vegetables in the Central Valley of California 
and fruit crops down in the southeast and grains in the middle of the country. Uh, and so there's no one simple solution, but there are lots of important solutions. Um, there are solutions how you manage uh, your rotations, what crops you grow, uh, where you grow them, and, and how you mix, uh, for example, as Nate was saying, annual crops with perennial crops. How you manage uh, grazing uh, can vary tremendously if you move the cows around very frequently, uh, sort of imitating the way the bison might have been on the, on the plains can have dramatic reductions in the uh, pollution caused from the grazing and how you manage manure, whether it's managed in a wet system or a dry system, can make a big difference in methane generation. So there's no one practice that we need to change, no one aspect, but many, many opportunities throughout agriculture and inversely every type of agriculture. Uh, there are opportunities both to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and to increase the carbon stored in the soils and in the plants. Got it, that makes sense. So in order for these actions to be implemented then, what should the Biden administration in addition to policymakers be doing right now? Well, I'll start, uh, there's a lot the government can do in, in many ways. Uh, one of the things that we learned doing the book uh, and frankly, uh, as any farmer or, or anyone who works with farmers will tell you is how influential federal farm policy is to what happens on the field. Uh, and that's not a surprise. In, in a standard year, government uh, payments are, are a very significant portion of income uh, to the farm sector right? and often a third or more of total income. So obviously, the farm policy uh, will affect what farmers do. So that means there's a lot of ways that if we change that policy, it can have an impact on what is happening on the farm. We already spend many billions of dollars every year, say on conservation payments. Some of those are well-targeted and some of those less well-targeted. Uh, that program could be better targeted to create incentives and support farmers undertaking climate-friendly conservation practices. The government has thousands of, of technical outreach specialists already in the field. Uh, and those uh, very important staff uh, can be encouraged to focus more on helping farmers transition to more climate-friendly practices. There's other programs, the commodity programs, the crop insurance programs, and many of those both provide some disincentives uh, to climate-friendly practices, like the way, for example, commodity payments are calculated makes it harder to have a longer crop rotation. Uh, and the, some of the aspects of the crop insurance program create disincentives to beneficial practices. So these very important programs uh, can be enhanced to help farmers transition to climate-friendly practices. Uh, and then in addition, of course, governments have procurement of power. They can use their, their purchasing power to encourage the purchase of climate-friendly products. And that's, of course, not just the federal government, but the state and local governments as well. Yeah, I, I would add, uh, you know, in addition to everything P 
Peter listed, which is just there is no aspect of agriculture that the federal uh, federal government isn't involved with in a significant way. So there are just so many levers uh, that can be pulled by the Biden administration or, or Congress. Uh, but in, in addition to that, I think uh, regulating the worst polluters uh, is is absolutely necessary, and uh, the Biden administration has the authority to do it under current law. And states also have regulatory authority. Uh, many states can go beyond where the federal government is, and even if the federal government chooses not to address some of the worst polluters, say the biggest of the uh, concentrated animal feeding operations, a state can do so, uh, both to address air or water pollution. It sounds like there are a lot of opportunities for progress. Another point in your book that I found particularly interesting is related to offsets. So generally, there's a lot of talk about using soil carbon sequestration as offsets for emissions from other sectors. However, in your book, you make the point that we shouldn't do this. Why? Well, I think it's a tricky question. The idea behind offsets is that farmers can increase the amount of carbon in their plants and soil and then sell a carbon credit generally to a fossil fuel polluter who wants to essentially avoid reducing their emissions. And there's both a technical fallacy here and I think a policy fallacy. The technical fallacy is that it's very hard to measure soil carbon uh, in a way that is both accurate uh, and administratively feasible uh, for example, enough to allow small farmers uh, and farmers that have been traditionally excluded from farm programs to participate. Uh, also, soil carbon and, and carbon in plants is often impermanent. Uh, you can change practices and increase uh, the carbon that is stored, uh, but then you can go back to other practices and much of that carbon will be released again, whereas those fossil emissions are, are permanent. Uh, there's also the, the policy problem, which is that uh, on the one hand, if farmers are really uh, contributing significant greenhouse gases, uh, then it should be, they need to reduce their own uh, greenhouse gas footprint and, and, and not assume that footprint doesn't exist and any reductions can be uh, attributed elsewhere. It really goes back to the fallacy we talked uh, about the beginning that there's a uh, not a clear understanding of the significance of the contribution of agriculture to climate change. So if people don't think they emit much, then any reductions, oh, are sort of free to be given elsewhere. But once we understand that there's a significant contribution, we realize their reductions really should be attributed to their own sector. Uh, now, that's not to say that uh, a company that, say, buys from a, a farmer may not want to encourage their suppliers to adopt climate-friendly practices so that they can sell product that maybe has a better climate uh, footprint or attributes. And that's a very different thing than using carbon as an offset to allow continued fossil fuel pollution. So shifting gears a bit, but what surprised you as you were conducting the research to write this book? There were, there were a lot of things as we were going through the, the researching for the book that really surprised me or, or that I 
changed my mind on or, or developed a much better understanding of. But I think there were, there were kind of two issues or, or, or two things um, that, that really surprised me. And one was the importance of perennial agriculture. Uh, as we dove into the scientific literature and began talking to researchers, it became really clear that we're going to need to vastly increase our use of, of perennial crops, um, such as trees, those grown on trees, shrubs, uh, as well as perennial grass, um, if the sector is ever going to become truly sustainable, both from a, an environmental perspective and a more narrowly focused climate one. And then two, I think, you know, I b before I began working on on the the book, I was already doing some work on farm labor issues, um, and uh, but I saw farm labor and climate issues as being two very distinct issues. But as we were working on the book, and we began to think more about how the sector needed to change and and how it was already being affected, and um, you know, we we're talking to uh, farm worker organizations. It became very clear that climate was not only a uh, climate change was not only a major concern of farm workers and, and farm worker organizations, but that farm workers uh, necessarily are going to have to be a major part of that change. And I think um, the changing um, labor law to ensure that farmers have the, the power to, to organize um, and increase their power in the sector will be an important aspect of uh, ensuring that the sector is more responsible when it comes to the climate. And that was not something uh, that I would have, uh, I, I would not have claimed five years ago. Yeah, it's been really important to learn about the different constituencies uh, that are involved in farm policy. Very often it, it's viewed as there's the farmer uh, and both that vision of what the farmer is, is often inaccurate. And as Nate was saying, there are a lot of other constituents that have an important role in our food production system in our agricultural and rural economies that are often left out of that, that debate. But I think I would say there's a couple other things that surprised me. Um, one was the good news, which is even though this area has really been starved for research, uh, there's not been much federal research on sustainable or climate-friendly farming. The vast majority of it goes to very conventional approaches. Uh, but even despite that, we already know a lot. Uh, there's a lot of farmers and ranchers out there who are uh, trying out new approaches. Uh, many of them aren't really new. They're often uh, sort of a haul bar, bring back uh, perhaps some practices that have their roots in, in earlier or indigenous practices and then modernized uh, with modern capacities. Um, and these farmers who are operating in all different parts of the country on many different crops using 
cover crops, crops rotation, advanced uh, and rotational grazing, uh, organic farmers, uh, and many others are, are showing that it is really quite possible to farm in a way, to produce a lot of food in a way that uh, does not contribute to climate change, but either, rather can help us uh, slow and even uh, stop climate change. So despite the, the, the research and despite the, the lack of government attention, we actually know a lot. We have a lot of examples of what can work uh, because of the farmers that are and ranchers that are already doing it out there. On the other hand, the other thing that surprised me is that there is a lot of federal government money being spent every year, uh, as I mentioned, in the commodity programs, the crop insurance programs, the conservation programs, subsidized loans uh, and subsidized or tax reductions, trade payments. And this is tens of billions of dollars every year going out. And there's surprisingly little accountability. Uh, there is very little expectation uh, that the public is getting much back in return for these taxpayer funding. Uh, and obviously it's, it helps us have a arguably cheaper food supply of these commodity foods, but uh, there is very little oversight of the environmental impact of this food production. And a number of studies in the last year or so have shown that the true cost of food is really about three times what you see at the supermarket shelves. And that true cost is, if you take into account the environmental and health harms uh, and labor harms of our what looks like cheap food. And uh, that is a real opportunity because we as a society are spending a lot of our taxpayer money to support the, the agricultural system. And arguably we should, obviously the food system is super important. Um, frankly, the war in Ukraine uh, and its impact on grain production might uh, remind us yet again, as did the COVID-19 pandemic, how, how both important and fragile our food system is. So we should be supporting it, but we should also expect that uh, for that support, that we are doing so and that the operators are working in a way that doesn't have hidden costs, that isn't creating climate change, isn't polluting our air and water, isn't harming our public health or exploiting workers. So uh, that was a surprise how little accountability and oversight there is right now. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so since publishing the book, what feedback have you gotten? Have people been supportive of your suggestions? Have you seen resistance to any of the book's messages? Well, I'd say there's been a ton of interest. It's great. It's already sold out its first printing uh, and it's gone to its second printing, which I think is coming out now at the beginning of March. And, uh, and I think that's because uh, there is uh, the need for change of a food system is apparent. Uh, it, uh, as I mentioned, the COVID-19 pandemic certainly for many people woke them up to the fragility of our food system. And even though everyone thinks about food often, they don't think about where it comes from. And maybe they're beginning to think about that a little bit more. And of course, climate change is every day becoming more apparent with extreme weather in every part of the country, changing weather patterns. 
And of course, agriculture is on the front line of that. And so I think a number of things coming together are increasing people's interest in the issue generally. And I think our book is one of the few out there to try to address this in a comprehensive and very, very careful manner. There's hundreds and hundreds of footnotes there. We tried very carefully to be sure that we wouldn't say anything that wasn't well supported. And I think that that has uh, been helpful to policymakers. So the good news is we've seen a lot of support and interest in the book so far. It's great to hear that the book has been so successful. It definitely covers an incredibly important topic. And so I'm glad it's gotten that support and is kind of propelling this conversation forwards. So I have one last question for both of you. I'm thinking about our listeners. Is there anything else you'd like to share with them today? Any thoughts about actions they can be taking to help reduce agricultural emissions or anything else? Yeah, so I would I would uh, suggest that environmental lawyers and anyone else that might be listening uh, should be very skeptical of simple reforms or, or easy solutions pushed by the industry that uh, promise to be a win-win for farmers and the environment. Anaerobic digestion, for example, which uses manure to produce natural gas, promises to reduce emissions, uh, help rural communities, and provide additional income for farmers. But anaerobic digestion only reduces emissions if you compare it to uh, unregulated, highly polluting forms of, of manure management. Once you compare it to other forms of managing manure, such as pasture-based ones, its climate benefits uh, disappear. And the same is true with the other benefits that the industry claims it provides. And, you know, as the, the public and policymakers increasingly focus on uh, the climate change implications of agricultural policy, I think we're going to get a number of false solutions like this. And this, this isn't to say that uh, anaer there, there isn't a place for anaer anaerobic digestion, um, but it's, it's a matter of focusing on uh, what should be done through regulation and what should be done through uh, government programs and funding. And I would add to that, that, and that's a very important point. There's uh, a lot of opportunity in a, in a field where there isn't much solid information for some incorrect information, or, or frankly, sometimes intentional disinformation. And some of the uh, actions and opportunities that are peddled as solutions that really aren't, uh, I think we have to be wary of. I would say the, the most important thing for any listener is to engage. The farm bill and farm policy are probably some of the most uh, important environmental uh, laws that most people have never heard of. Uh, and they're very different. Uh, the farm bill has to get reauthorized every five years. Compare that to the Clean Water Act that was last reauthorized, what, in 1987, or the Clean Air Act last re, uh, re amended. Uh, in 1990. And uh, so the Farm Bill has to be uh, revisited by Congress every few years and presents us a real opportunity to address an activity that uses more than half of, of the land in the contiguous United States. 
is a major source of air and water pollution and, and affecting habitat uh, of wildlife and endangered species and others. And so environmental advocates uh, need to engage um, in a way that they really haven't in the past. Uh, moreover, it, this has a huge impact in our food system and the food that is produced. Uh, and so anyone who eats, and that's pretty much everybody, has a real stake in our food system uh, from the very beginning of it. And so people who are concerned about nutritious food, healthy food, food justice, food access, uh, all should really think about engaging more uh, with the Farm Bill in particular. But also since state governments have often many parallel uh, activities, uh, act, parallel laws that provide incentives or oversight in some ways to farm policy. Uh, people should engage at the state level as well. And uh, we mentioned earlier other ways that people can engage as well in addition to trying to affect or learn about policy. Uh, this is a, a country where dollars speak very loudly. How people use their individual dollars and what they buy, uh, how they encourage the companies they work in or the governments that they, their local governments to use their procurement power to support uh, climate friendly foods and foods with a lower climate impact. Uh, all of this is a very, another very important way to participate uh, in, in not only using your voice, but using your, your dollars. So, that I think is really the most important. Here is this very, very important environmental program, uh, the, the, the farm policies in the United States, mostly in the farm bill, but also in environmental laws. And environmental advocates and really anyone who is concerned about the environment, climate change, public health, nutrition, and food uh, really have to speak up more because if they don't, those policies are made by a relatively small group of people who've been largely involved in that policy making in the past uh, who aren't necessarily thinking more broadly about uh, all these other aspects uh, that are affected by the food system. So I hope this podcast will help get people to pay attention uh, to the Farm Bill. It's very likely going to be reauthorized next year. It's coming up for reauthorization in 2023. And already there's plenty of discussions going on. Learn about it, engage, and start insisting that it is a farm bill that supports uh, the interests of all Americans. Nate and Peter, thank you both so much for your time and insights. You've given me a lot to think about. Thank you. Thank you, Heather. It's been great to be with you. It's always great to be with Nate. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you, so please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.